Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. On Saturday, the rainbow colors were proudly waving for the 2023 Pride Parade filled with love, acceptance, and celebration. And what a day it was. Boston Pride for the People created a safe, welcoming, high-energy parade and festival that brought allies and queer folks together to celebrate LGBTQI plus pride and feel the joy of unconditional acceptance. I think it's so important to be able to be yourself, um, and I am so honored to be in a community where it is accepted to be diverse and exactly who you are. It took me a long time to finally be who I am, and it just feels really... Um, free and I hope other people can do the same. If there wasn't a place for all groups to be safe and just to be welcomed, it would be harder for us to just be fully who we are. And I don't think that's fair for anyone. I feel like everyone should have a place to express themselves both fully and whoever they are. I think it's important to still celebrate Pride because there are many places where people are excluded for being different. And I think having spaces where everyone can feel welcomed and know that people aren't discriminating against them is very important. LGBTQ Pride isn't just about celebration, parties, and Pride flags. It's about acknowledging all communities and finding intersectional points to stand in solidarity together against hate. Because together, we're stronger. It honestly just gives, gen in general, everyone hope because it's very important to be equitable, include everybody into all conversations because everyone has a different story to tell that maybe someone else that you know might not necessarily have that same experience. Being a minority myself, it's really important to feel safe in a community, um, feel accepted. Uh, it's, it's really imperative. Uh, it's, it's got to be kind of a way of life with the way things are present day. Uh, I don't know if I'm gonna get to come home to my family. So being in a place like this where I know I'm accepted, um, it's just the most important thing to me. Intersectionality is an absolutely vital part of pride. Black pride is an absolutely vital part of gay pride because all these issues intersect. Um, and so if we're not respecting everyone, we're not respecting anyone. With lots of laughs, smiles, cheers, and chants, the day embraced people of all identities, cultures, and places by the magic of LGBTQ pride. And we cannot wait until next year. On Monday, the State House shined a spotlight on veterans who answered the call and saved our nation proudly. Earlier this week, women veterans were recognized and honored for their service to our nation at the Massachusetts State House. Often forgotten or overlooked for their contributions, women veterans have rich stories that are waiting to be told. And on Monday, they had the platform to tell their own narratives and be uplifted by their communities. Honor us of the entitlements that we have fought for almost 100 years. Do not deny us, honor us, of the services that are so unique to a woman's body. Do not deny us. Simply honor us and recognize us and respect us. The 2023 Deborah Sampson Award was given to Jenny D. Olympia, an Air Force veteran and psychologist who has dedicated her life to helping and working with veterans in a variety of settings. 
It's uh, really important for women veterans to be acknowledged because people in the community don't realize the role that women veterans have been playing for so many years and often women veterans are overlooked or only uh, stories of us being victims are told in the community and in the press. It's time for uh, the world to acknowledge that women veterans are in combat roles and that we are actively engaged in all military uh, activities and that our nation cannot go to war without our military women. There's consensus in providing more support to our women veterans who have played such an integral role in our nation's freedom. We're here today to celebrate women veterans in Massachusetts and I just want folks to know that our administration so strongly supports women in our military. We're grateful to so many women veterans who served and it wasn't always easy for them. We know some of the barriers and some of the challenges and we would not be the strong military country we are today without the service of our women veterans. Duty, honor, perseverance, and pride. These are just some of the words which describe the brave women who have and continue to make the ultimate sacrifice for all by donning the uniform. And Monday was a small token by the Commonwealth to give our thanks. It was a cap and gown affair at Pine Street Inn as the 2023 class of their workforce development program took the next step towards success. Good morning, everyone. Class? Good morning. Congratulations, because we did it! It was a morning full of emotion last Friday as the trainees of Pine Street Inn's Workforce Development Program joined the procession at their graduation. The class of 2023 are emerging with hard-earned skills after completing the three-month-long iCater and housekeeping training programs, which will put them on the path to securing jobs in the food service industry and hospitality field, with the goal of putting homelessness behind them. The job training program is so important because these individuals who come here are so talented and they just need the tools and the people to help them along and lead them in the right direction. And they will showcase their skills and they really shine and they end up getting excellent jobs um, in the culinary field or the housekeeping field. And um, this really sets them up for success. A second chance in life doesn't come around often. And so getting a second chance to become part of the workforce and feel the self-esteem and identity as a contributing member of society is an enormous step for many people. And when they're down and out, it doesn't seem possible. What Pine Street does is it shows them the avenues that they can take. For many of these graduates, this is the first graduation they've experienced, and they're hopeful for the possibilities their new job training will afford them, and grateful to Pine Street Inn for believing in their success. Having a job, making my own money, and get a chance to pay my own bill, it's overwhelming in so many words. It is overwhelming to, you know, I could take somebody out to dinner. Um, I could take my nieces out to dinner. I could buy clothes for myself. Um, sky's the limit. Pine Street gave me the second chance that I truly needed. A lot of people look down on addicts and a lot of people look down on your past. In Pine Street, they didn't look at any of that. They looked at the person we really were. And that, that to me meant the world. They saw me 
They saw me as me and they gave me the, they saw the potential in me that I didn't even see at first. And they gave me the, the will and determination to try to be like the people they are. They help us all. They literally give their lives to making sure that we have that chance. Rooting them on was Attorney General Andrea Campbell, who knows all too well how hardship can shape a life. Her keynote address let graduates know that a tough start does not have to mean a tough end. And I want to remind you that all the moments, every little thing that happened to you prior to today, the pain, the trauma, the suffering, maybe at moments the despair, all of that has brought you here today. All of it is a part of your story. There should be no shame in telling it and sharing it because it informs your success today. And while that past suffering may inform your future purpose, it will absolutely not dictate your future. Friday was more than a graduation. It was a new lease on life for those who had come to Pine Street Inn for help. We celebrated today the graduation of 93 people who finished one of the job training programs here at Pine Street Inn, but we also celebrated them graduating not just from a job training program, but graduating out of homelessness, finding housing, finding jobs, and having the courage to pick up and take another step after having fallen down many, many times and moving on. So it was a beautiful day and um, it's just an honor to be here and be part of it. As long as that iconic steeple remains, there will always be a second chance for those experiencing homelessness in Boston to transform their lives. Lindia Downey is the president and executive director of Pine Street Inn, the largest provider of permanent supportive housing for individuals moving out of homelessness in New England. She's collaborated with the Commonwealth and the city of Boston to bring the population of homelessness to under 3%. Downey joined us in studio to share the exciting developments happening at Pine Street Inn. There have been so many incredible achievements at Pine Street Inn. Most recently, there was the graduation of 77 individuals from the Workforce Development Training Program. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of that day for graduates and what it was like to hold graduation after three years? I have to say it is probably the most inspiring day all year at Pine Street to see people who walked into the shelter homeless People who walked in with nothing graduate from a job training program, get employment, on their way to housing. They're an inspiration to all of us who work with them. And, you know, we started graduation many years ago. We had a, a food services training program that is, is now called iCater, and it's a social enterprise. We, we have a catering company that employs homeless people. And as part of the employment in the, in the catering company, Folks get some classroom time, they get some soft skills training, and they get help finding a job when they've finished uh, their training portion. And somebody said to me many years ago that he was really proud because he had finished this and he hadn't graduated from high school and he had never been to a graduation. And I thought, well, you know, people deserve to be made a big deal of and they deserve to stand up there like everyone else. They've had many more obstacles than a lot of other graduates. And it's a lovely day. We often have a speaker who talks about his or her journey. And the speaker this year, um, a young woman named Sadia, was sleeping in the bus station with her son. And she lost her apartment. Uh, her rent went up. Uh, she 
obviously she, she, her, her uh, pay didn't go up, rent went up substantially and she eventually lost her housing. Ended up sleeping at the bus station, went down to Boston Medical Center. Uh, they, they sent her to a family shelter and then she joined our training program. She's now found a job, she's got an apartment with her son and you know, the sky's the limit. I, I hope this is the beginning for her. But those are the kind of stories that just inspire you when you, when you watch um, how hard things have been for her but how much she persevered. Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful to see people have a, another chance, have a second chance to, to have the life that they want. Yes, yes, absolutely. In May, Boston Planning and Development Agency, they unanimously approved a collaborative project between Pine Street Inn and the Community Builders, and in which you will be converting the Comfort Inn, mm -hmm. that's on 900 Morrissey Boulevard, to permanent supportive housing for vulnerable populations. But there is a focus on seniors. Can you talk about the vision behind this project and its latest developments? So since COVID started, we've actually been, been looking for a hotel to convert to housing. It's an idea that um, there's been a few of these conversions across the country before COVID, but during COVID, it became uh, a much bigger area of interest for two reasons. A lot of shelters, including ours, in order to stop the spread of COVID, we really had to find alternative sites for people, and hotels were one of the sites we used. Uh, we leased up two separate hotels where people shared rooms, but it occurred to us through that process that a lot of these hotel rooms, some of which actually had small kitchenettes and were really set up as a small studio apartment, really could be easily converted. And so we've been looking literally since probably the first couple of months of, of COVID. It's been challenging to find a hotel uh, that worked for a variety of reasons, location, you know, cost, um, accessibility. And this hotel really ticked all the boxes. So we're very excited. We will be able to convert the hotel to uh, 99 units of permanent supported housing for elders. Wow. And <clears throat> the lovely thing about a hotel like that is, you know, it's, it's very accessible, right? There's a working elevator. The systems are in good shape. The apartments we build, not hotels necessarily, are about 350 square feet. They're very small studio apartments with a, a, a small bathroom, a little kitchenette, you know, enough room for a bed, a bureau, right. you know, a two-person kitchen table. It's about the size of a hotel room. Um, so the conversion, uh, we hope, will be relatively easy and quick. There'll be a lot of lovely common space on the ground floor. And it's really exciting to be able to add housing for seniors in particular because we know, you know, just like everybody else, we've got baby boomers in our population. Those folks are aging. They're faced with many more challenges, a lot of medical issues, mobility issues, and to be able to uh, renovate this building and direct it to seniors is just a, it's just a, a home run. Hmm. And what are some of the other efforts that are currently being made to create permanent supportive housing for men and women experiencing homelessness in the city? So you and I were just talking about this. We've got a big project right down the street here from the studio, right here on Washington Street in Jamaica Plain. Uh, that building, we're probably eight months away from finishing construction there. That's a new construction. Uh, Pine Street owned a warehouse there where we did some job training and we used it for storage. At one point, we were in a thrift store there. But it was underutilized space. It's, it's a good-sized site, so we're partnered, again, with community builders. And they're uh, built, literally building the building. And then when it's completed, there'll be uh, 220 units, and we will have... Uh, Pine Street will have access to 140 of those units for formerly homeless people. The, the other units will also be low income. 
um, but those are bigger than the than the studio apartments that that we'll be using to help move people out of homelessness. That's great. And Mayor Wu has allocated a sizable amount of funding, $16.5 million, to combating homelessness in Boston. Mm -hmm. What are your hopes for this funding, and how will Pine Street Inn be involved in the conversation for directing how this money is spent? So this money is money that originates with HUD, and we as a city are, are part of what is called our own continuum. So uh, the way it works is that all of us all of the agencies in Boston that work with homeless people, you know, Pine Street, the city's own shelter, uh, St. Francis House, Homestart, the agencies that do placement and work hard to get people out of homelessness, um, each submit an application to the city, and that entire application goes to HUD. And often what's included in that funding is rental assistance. Uh, sometimes there's capital included for acquisition or, or rehabbing a building. Um, sometimes there's um, short-term help uh, for people that are, you know, just need a smaller bridge out of homelessness. And so that, that part of this money is a renewal for existing housing. A small portion of, of this year's money is going to more street outreach so we can work directly with people on the street and we, Pine Street, will, will um, be the beneficiaries of that. And it will allow us to expand our street teams. We, you know, we really do uh, two things on the street. We have two outreach vans that go out from 9 at night, 9 p.m. till 5 a.m. every night, working with people directly who don't come into shelter, some cases transporting people. Um, in other cases, providing you know basic first aid and, and and very basic help for folks, right? Food and blankets and things like that. And then we have a daytime team that tries to follow up and works with people directly on the street to get them into housing, fill out applications, and that could be a whole variety of things: benefits, it could be employment, it could be someone wants to get needs to get into treatment, and we'll we'll work with them on that. Hmm. You know, last year alone, we placed a hundred people directly from the street into housing, and so this new pot of money will allow us to place more people into housing directly from the street. And I, I would say that of all the things we do, it's the hardest, takes the longest. Um, and, you know, once folks are, are staying outside and they don't ever come in to shelter or one of our programs, just the logistical challenges are just so much more difficult. And since 1969, Pine Street Inn has worked tirelessly to provide a safe alternative to the streets. What misconception would you like to dispel about homelessness in Boston? The stereotype that homeless people aren't motivated and they don't want to work, the opposite's true. People have to work twice as hard. They have so many bigger hills to climb, and the push out is so much harder that many of us could never do it. Um, and so to me, that stereotype that you know somehow uh, the majority of homeless people um, are something different than they really are. You know, a small, smaller group that's really struggling. And, and we know what that, we know who that, those folks are, and, and in many ways supportive housing really is the solution for those people, not for everybody. Um, but I think I'm always, what's the word, astounded, surprised at the stereotypes um, and the fear. Mm. Uh, you know, I've been doing this, as you said, for 40 years. I've not once been afraid, not once felt unsafe. Um, so it's, it, the stereotype doesn't match the reality on this one. On June 19, 1865, 2,000 Union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas to announce that the more than 250,000 slaves in the state were free by executive decree, which we know today as Juneteenth. On Wednesday, the Embrace Ideas Festival launched three days of events to remind people of its significance. With the Juneteenth on the horizon, 
Events celebrating black liberation kicked off Wednesday on the Boston Common at the New Embrace Memorial. The event consisted of words of inspiration from state and community leaders, as well as a concert featuring the Embrace Choir and other city groups. Juneteenth reminds us of the resilience and strength of the black community in the face of oppression. We must continue to honor and uplift the contributions of black people in our communities and work to dismantle the systemic racism and inequities that have been embedded across our Commonwealth and our country. It's vital that we tell the truth about Boston's role in the transatlantic slave trade hmm. and the impact that remains today from that legacy. We cannot rest until every person in our country is free. Free from racism, free from violent policies, free from practices across our state, city, and nation. The program focused on the inequities that persist in daily life for many Black Americans who feel the lasting effects of slavery and our collective role in standing up for those impacted by systemic racism. I'd like to invite you to consider the legacy of colonization and white supremacy embedded within the technologies, structures, and ways of thinking that we use every day. We are using equipment and high-speed internet not available in many indigenous and black communities. So join me in acknowledging our shared responsibility and privilege to make good of this time and for each of us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Also featured, remarks from Embrace Boston leadership, asking participants to remember the legacy of Dr. and Mrs. King, now immortalized in the Embrace statue. It wasn't so long ago that we were gathered here to unveil the Embrace and share the city and the world this incredible tribute to Dr. and Mrs. King's love and legacy. We are now here as a part of the Embrace Ideas Festival, which was not only created to celebrate Juneteenth, but created to celebrate us all to learn to how to build the tools of freedom that we received in Galveston, Texas in 1863. This festival is about the power of knowledge. It is about the power of joy. This festival is about you and the future that we are building together. The importance of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion was emphasized and how Massachusetts will not neglect the history of slavery, white supremacy, or black history. And black history is American history. We will teach it. We will talk about it. We will embrace it. As we will everything related to DEI. Because if we don't know our nation's history, if we don't know our nation's true history, we won't know how to build its future. Composer Mason Bynes' latest work explores the complexities of the African-American experience through song and spoken word. Her operetta, The Wanderer's Tethering, premiering this Sunday, June 18th, in anticipation of Juneteenth, asks some important questions on the meaning of identity. Here's our conversation on the one-day performance featuring Boston Poet Laureate Portia Olayuola. So the Wanderer's Tethering, uh, recently commissioned by Boston Lyric Opera, is having its premiere during the Juneteenth weekend at Hibernian Hall. Can you take us through the story of this libretto? 
Sure. So The Wanderer's Tetherings follows a story of a woman named Toby who's half black American and half um, Nigerian, specifically from the Igbo tribe. And it's a story of becoming, and I like how Portia, the libretto, talks about it. She mentions it as rememory being the power of the story. So she goes through these different vignettes where she is determining what's the power of her name, where does it come from, what's the power of both of her identities as a black American but also as a Nigerian specifically from the Igbo tribe and the whole story of the Igbo people. And it's for soprano, spoken word, and string quartet. So there are moments where Portia, who will be uh, delivering the spoken word, represents another version of Toby and they converse with one another and as the story progresses uh, she recollects over Dunbar Creek which is where this whole story of um, the Igbo people happened and she almost goes deeper the more that she goes deeper and deeper into this creek the more she starts to be taken over and pulled by the story of Toby and um, her whole process of seeking freedom within the Igbo tribe. Wow, and the libretto actually tells a true story of the 1803 uh, Igbo slave revolt that occurred in Georgia. Unfortunately, it's not known by many people. Uh, what about the story compelled you to write the music for this? Yeah, it's interesting. When this piece, when I was approached for this piece, I was just coming off of a different um, collaboration with the Philadelphia Chamber Music Society, and it was just, and it was also a collaboration with the incredible Pine Forge Academy Choir and all of those amazing singers. And it was giving life to some of the runaway slave ads that were on a database called Freedom on the Move that was uh, made by Cornell University. And that whole process of seeing all of these identities of people who reclaimed themselves as emancipated slaves fed into picking up this piece where it's of the same nature, but it's still a story of, of owning your, like reclaiming yourself and owning your sense of self. Um, whether that's through the power of rememory, like Portia was saying, so figuring out how to capture that in the piece that also included synthesizing Negro spirituals and Igbo folklore music to capture that sense of rememory. So it was a really interesting journey of quilting almost, just stitching together a lot of different inspirations of both identities um, to make that story happen. And you mentioned Portia Olayuwola, who's the Boston Poet Laureate. Can you talk about the experience of collaborating with her on this? What stands out to you about the process and how were you able to build off of each other's strengths? Yeah, what was really fun about this, this is the first time I've ever set a libretto of this uh, length, but also with a living poet. I usually, you know, we have to deal with public domain and all of those things as composers, and so I would usually just stick with public domain text so that I wouldn't have to worry about anything. With this, it meant more to be able to talk to a living, breathing person. Um, and so when we were going through this process, she had already written the libretto, so I asked her to record a couple of the vignettes to hear her pacing, the way that she said certain words, the way that she hung on to certain words. Um, and then, you know, I'd send back a couple drafts here and there, I would vocalize a couple things here and there to capture it, uh, and it was a really fun process. We start rehearsals this week, so it should be fun. So exciting. Um, and speaking of uh, more exceptional women that you, you worked with, uh, Rhiannon Giddens, who's the 2023 Pulitzer Prize winner of the opera Omar, she yeah. actually mentored you as you were creating this piece. 
What did you learn from her, and how do you feel the Wanderers Tethering speaks to um, Juneteenth? Yeah, Rhiannon Giddens is incredible. I'm so grateful to have even gotten to meet her, and I met her when I was doing that other show in Philadelphia. And the first time I had saw her perform that work and the series we were in, the way that she approaches talking about our history, um, specifically as, as it pertains to slavery, but finding the joy and the individualism and the humanity within those spaces and making it approachable and accessible to everyone in the audience. You could hear a pin drop when she was performing and she was barefoot and playing banjo and like conversing with the audience too about the meaning and significance of this history that's everyone's history. So when I met up with her to show the drafts, I was struggling a bit because I wanted to make sure that I was getting this correct morally. Like there's an obligation as an artist to make sure that you're capturing, well, that I'm capturing both the black American experience, but then also the Nigerian experience within this story. So when I told her about figuring out how to synthesize Negro spirituals or songs from music from really notable composers within the black American experience like Margaret Bonds and trying to find um, Igbo folklore to synthesize. She really helped me figure out a way to make that seamless and figure out a way um, to give a voice to both sides. So really grateful that we got to meet. What does Juneteenth mean to you? Juneteenth I think is a celebration of life and the resilience of black Americans. How can our viewers learn more about this libretto and attend? Yes, so if you log on to BLO, Boston Lyric Opera's website, uh, there's a whole page dedicated to our concert, and that's where you can find out about more about Portia, Castle of Our Skins, Brianna Robinson, who's also the soprano performing it, um, and it's also a pay-what-you-can event, so we really encourage everyone to come as well. That's our broadcast for tonight, Boston. Thank you for tuning in. We wish you a happy Father's Day weekend and happy Juneteenth. For BNN News, I'm Faith Macedon. I'll see you next Friday.